Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello again, everyone. We've just finished the first major section of the Book of Mosiah, King Benjamin's speech. And Mormon has left us with a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of chapter 6. He says, And there was no contention among all his people for the space of three years. Well, that should get our minds looking forward to what happens next. And Mormon will begin the transition from a Zarahemla-focused story to a story about gathering in the lost tribes of the Nephites. That is, after all, a central function of the Lord's covenant people. Getting into the chapter in verses 1 through 6, Mormon reminds us immediately that it's been three years of peace. In the previous chapter, he also noted that Benjamin was alive for the first three years of Mosiah's reign. So Benjamin dies, and now we can begin our next story. The way that Mormon initially tells it, is that Mosiah wants to know about the group of Nephites who left Zarahemla to try and reclaim the land of Lehi-Nephi, or the land of their fathers. This group will come to be known by a number of names, but I'm going to use the name Zenephites, or the people of Zenith. Anyways, we quickly find out that this isn't originally Mosiah's idea, but that the people had wearied him with their teasings. I love that description. But it makes sense. They've just made this covenant. They've been spiritually reborn. They have a renewed sense of unity to serve one another. Of course their thoughts are going to go to this lost part of their tribe. I call them lost for a few reasons. First, I want to keep in mind the lost tribes of Israel. I think there's a useful parallel to be made here with the scattering and gathering of Israel and the scattering and gathering of the Nephites and Mulekites. But in a more straightforward sense, they really are lost to the people in Zarahemla. They had heard nothing from them from the time that they left. So Mosiah succumbs to the teasings of his people and gets a search party together of 16 strong men. And he puts a guy named Ammon in charge. Since Ammon will play an important part in the story of the gathering in these lost tribes, we get some biographical information on him. It turns out that Ammon is not a Nephite. He's not even a Lehite. He's a Mulekite. He's a descendant of Zarahemla, a previous leader of the Mulekites, and it's probable that some of, if not all, of his companions are also Mulekites. This is kind of interesting. Nobody in living memory has been to the land of Lehi-Nephi that we know of, so I suppose it doesn't really matter that Ammon's ancestors never lived there, but wouldn't it make sense to send a Nephite to go gather in the Nephites? Well, not necessarily. It could be that Mosiah knows that the lost Zenophites, if they can be found, are in enemy territory. And while the Mulekites have fought against the Lamanites under King Benjamin, it may have been more diplomatic to send a group of Mulekites, led by a person from a non-competing royal line. If Zarahemla was a descendant of Mulek and Ammon was a descendant of Zarahemla, he could have literally been the heir to the throne of David. Also, Another interesting parallel, and maybe this is one reason why Mormon wants us to have the name of Ammon in our minds, is that Mosiah has a son named Ammon, another member of a royal line, and he will also 
head into Lamanite territory and will work to gather in Israel, but not as a strong and mighty man, but as a servant missionary. Anyways, the search party wanders for 40 days in the wilderness. 40 is often a number that just means a long time in the scriptures. So it might have been literally 40 days, or it could have just been a long time. But then they come to this hill north of the land of Shilom. This may be a significant hill. When little details like this get mentioned, we have to wonder if there was something in the missing pages that would have caused us to recognize this location, but we don't know. Clearly, Ammon and his search party are able to see the surrounding areas from this hill, and they've seen that they've come to a populated section of the land, because Ammon leaves 12 of his men behind and takes Amalekai, Helam, and Hem with him to go scout ahead into the land of Nephi. In verses 7 through 16, the story gets exciting. So exciting, in fact, that we're going to get it from two different perspectives. Here in chapter 7, Mormon will tell this story from the perspective of Ammon and his brethren. And in Mosiah 21, we'll get the story from the perspective of a king named Limhi. Well, I've already given away a part of the story. Ammon's crew immediately meets the king of the people who are in the land of Nephi and Shilom. It's not a happy meeting. These guys don't know each other, so the king's guard immediately take the Zarahemlites captive, and they are held in prison for two days, until Mormon says, And it came to pass, when they had been in prison for two days, they were again brought before the king, and their bands were loosed, and they stood before the king and were permitted, or rather commanded, that they should answer the questions which he should ask them. It's almost as if there's a divine hand guiding this interaction, even though neither party knows it yet. The king speaks first. His name is Limhi. He's the son of Noah, who is the son of Zenith, who was made king by the voice of the people when they came out of the land of Zarahemla to inherit the land of their fathers. Boom. Mission accomplished. Ammon and company have found the lost tribe. And you can hear the relief in Ammon's response. He's thankful and lets down his guard. For he says, I'm assured that if ye had known me, ye would not have suffered that I should have worn these bands. For I am Ammon, a descendant of Zarahemla, and have come up out of the land of Zarahemla to inquire concerning our brethren, whom Zenith brought up out of the land. Limhi is perhaps more relieved even than Ammon. It turns out they didn't even know if the people of Zarahemla were still alive, and what's more, Ammon's search party brings Limhi a glimmer of hope for his people. And now I will rejoice, and on the morrow I will cause that my people shall rejoice also. For behold, we are in bondage to the Lamanites, and are taxed with a tax which is grievous to be borne. And now, behold, our brethren will deliver us out of bondage, or out of the hands of the Lamanites, and we will be their slaves. For it is better that we be slaves to the Nephites than to pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites." Can you imagine how bad it must be for a king to offer his people as slaves without even a moment of hesitation? We won't have to imagine for long. Soon we'll get Limhi's account of their troubles. But before that, there's a kind of scriptural echo in this story to a parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son. Since it's one of the more well-known stories from the New Testament, we can get away with a very quick recap. You remember the story, I'm sure. There's a father with two sons. The younger son demands that his father gives him his inheritance right away so that he can leave and go live his own life. Now this is a bigger wound than just taking dad's cash. This inheritance is probably mostly in land, which means the inheritance passed down, likely for generations, 
has to be sold off in order to be liquidated. It's basically an irreconcilable loss. Even worse, this kind of demand is like the younger son telling the father that he's just going to treat him like he's dead. So the younger son goes off and lives his life among the Gentiles and basically breaks every commandment. He wastes away his inheritance until he has nothing and ends up living with the pigs, the ultimate insult to any Israelite. Finally, his situation becomes so dire that he decides it's better to be his father's servant than to continue living in bondage of his own choices. So he goes home. The father sees him afar off and runs to meet him without even waiting for an apology. The lost son, who was dead to the family, is now alive again. But the older brother, who has been faithful this whole time, is bitter. He can't stand the idea that his father is literally celebrating the return of a man who has wounded the family and insulted the father so deeply. Who is this story really about? Is it about the lost son? That's what prodigal means, so that's what we've called it for thousands of years now. Is it about the father who runs to forgive and love? Or is it about the older brother who is left to struggle with the very idea of forgiveness? The answer to that question probably depends on who you are. But when Jesus told the story in Luke 15, it was really a shot across the bow of the Jewish elite of his day. The story of the prodigal son is told right along the stories of the lost coin and lost sheep. The point is to drive home the lesson for the quote-unquote older brothers of Israel about the joy that God has when his wandering children return home, which is not quite the attitude that Jesus was encountering in the leaders of his day. So what am I hoping to accomplish with this little detour? It was the willingness of both the lost son and of Limhi to rush to become lowly servants and slaves that first caught my attention. If we're going to use Jesus' parable as a template to interpret our story in Mosiah, Limhi and his people would be the lost son, God would be the father who is trying to gather in his people, and the Nephites in the land of Zarahemla would be the older brother. In Jesus' parable, we are left hanging, not knowing the older brother's response to his father. In the book of Mosiah, we get a view of what that response should be. Limhi tells Ammon, we want to be your slaves. And we get this same offer a little later in the Book of Mormon from the anti-Nephi-Lehi's to another Ammon, Mosiah's son. And his response may help us to understand why it isn't an option for Limhi's people to be slaves to the Nephites and Zarahemla. Remember, this is from the second Ammon's response to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's offer. In Alma 27, he says, It is against the law of our brethren, which was established by my father, who is also the king during this first incident that we're looking at, that there should be any slaves among them. Therefore, let us go down and rely upon the mercies of our brethren. All of us know someone who has wandered, who has become the lost son. And what's more, if we look through the lens of the Abrahamic covenant, we are surrounded by scattered Israel, and without a doubt, there will be national, cultural, religious, and lifestyle differences between those who have been raised as members of the church and those who haven't. Some of those things may conflict with the standards of the church, and so they might be changed if people are truly to be gathered into the covenant. But some of them might just conflict with our own culture, which is filled with its own prejudices and blind spots. When we think about gathering Israel, what can we do to make sure we don't treat others as second-class citizens? How do we make sure that we don't go the way of the older brother and let our 
prejudices and grudges inhibit that gathering? And what about the lost sons, so to speak, who haven't yet returned? Are there things that we can do to get out of their way and hasten their return to the covenant? I've learned a lot by comparing the parable of the prodigal son to the stories that we get here in Mosiah. And whether or not Mormon intended us to make those comparisons, I think that that type of reading scripture against scripture can help illuminate some situations in our life and help us to maybe learn from the mistakes of the past to be better disciples of Christ right now. Moving on to the final section of this chapter in verses 17 through 33, King Limhi has become far more hospitable toward Ammon and the others. He's freed them and fed them. Remember, they've been wandering in the wilderness for some time. And now it's time to seize on the hope that they've brought and to gather the people together. So King Limhi sends a proclamation throughout the land for his people to gather. Most of what we get here is king speak. Basically, he's recounting their struggles and beginning to let them in on the hope that he's received from Ammon. He says, O ye, my people, lift up your heads and be comforted, for behold, the time is at hand, or is not far distant, when we shall no longer be in subjection to our enemies, notwithstanding our many struggles, which have been in vain. Yet I trust that there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. And then he tells them to put their trust in God, but not just any God. He wants them to trust in the God of the covenant, the God who liberates and guides through the wilderness in miraculous ways. This is all foreshadowing. We're going to cruise through a lot of this because we're going to get this story in a more robust way in just a few chapters. But basically, Limhi is reminding his people of their bondage to the Lamanites and the burdens and deaths that have resulted from that bondage. King Limhi, we learn in this speech, is not the type of leader who uses flattery in order to gain more power. Those leaders blame others when things don't go their way and take credit for success, no matter the actual outcomes. They seize on patriotism and nationalism in order to demand absolute loyalty. That's not what we get from Limhi. He's incredibly blunt about the shortcomings of the people, the greatest of which comes in verse 26, and this is another clue as to what we can expect from the story ahead. And a prophet of the Lord have they slain, yea, a chosen man of God, who told them of their wickedness and abominations, and prophesied of many things which are to come, yea, even the coming of Christ. Who is this prophet? Who killed him, and why does that matter to the story of Limhi's people? Well, spoilers, it's Abinadi, and it was Limhi's father, Noah, who killed him. Mormon has put this detail in here without any more information to make sure that our interest is piqued and that we know what to look for when we continue reading. Remember, Abinadi and Alma are right at the center of this book. Finally, this chapter ends with Limhi quoting Abinadi. We still don't get his name yet, and his prophecies about their destruction, which all of the people have witnessed. And Limhi, knowing that his people has been beaten down for generations, encourages them to turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put their trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind. If they do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver them out of bondage. This is a nice verse. It's one of those that is easily taken and applied to our circumstances, whatever struggle we're going through. It's got great phrases like full purpose of heart and all diligence of mind. But we'll learn that these aren't just vain words from Limhi and his people. They're not just being religious here. Their story is absolutely heartbreaking. 
They have lost again and again and have tried every other means of freeing themselves from bondage. For Limhi to stand up after decades of oppression and offer this hope to his people, there is a certain wild faith that this man has. He's one of the most overlooked leaders of the Book of Mormon, but just know that it would be a mistake to take his words lightly. That's all for today. The story is beginning to pick up again. Please don't let your eyes glaze over when these people who are so eager to sell themselves into slavery to escape their current state speak of hope. Part of saying that the Book of Mormon is true is to remember that these are human beings and their stories deserve our consideration, as do the stories of the people who are in our lives, some of whom are lost. If we want to do the work of gathering, it may very well need to begin with the work of listening. Talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.